We are at week three of Advent, a season where we pay attention to how God arrives. It's a season um, for me that I like to get my expectations straight. Specifically, these reminders of how it is that God comes into the world. And I'm sure part of it always has to do with our, like, some of our big giving stuff that we do and hearing, like, the Salvation Army bell ring in front of grocery stores. But most of it has to do with the readings that we tend to pull out this time of year. With the, the focus on the way in which God, or if you're new to all of this or stranger to the things of, of Christianity, at least the Christian iteration of who God is, comes into the world because it's just entirely unique and entirely strange and entirely poetic. And every year it just shakes me a bit. It helps me get my expectations of, of not just who God is and what he's like, but who God comes to. God has a way of showing up incognito again and again, really from the very beginning of the scriptures, from like Genesis 18 on. Jesus starts out his life as a refugee, fleeing Herod's persecution. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fleeing to Israel to live in Egypt as immigrants and foreigners. Makes you wonder why there's so many passages that say, tend to, care for, be mindful of the refugee, the foreigner, the fatherless. You have the road uh, to Emmaus story, which we've spent a lot of time with over the last year. That story where the resurrected Jesus is walking alongside these two very sad and frustrated and disappointed disciples. And then when they get to where they're going, when they break bread, they realize that Jesus has been in their midst and walking with them. He comes in disguise. My favorite example of Jesus coming in disguise is in Matthew 18. The disciples are arguing, like, who is going to, you know, rule in the new kingdom? Getting this kind of warped perception of what Jesus was actually up to. And Jesus takes a child and puts him in the midst of all of these bickering and power-hungry men. And he says, whoever welcomes this child welcomes me. Which is a funny phrase. If you've been around church, we get used to phrases like this. But if you welcome this child, you actually welcome me. Jesus comes essentially disguised again as a child. As one of those that he calls the least of these. I think in our world we miss even the power of a story like this. Because children are so central. In our culture, we've done a lot of good for all the ways that even that can get warped, Right? We, we, we know that children are important and we have like massive book industries and ways that we reorient our life hopefully around making sure they are present and out front. But this is a pretty radical move in first century Middle Eastern culture. Men were the center and then women and then you'd have the marginalized ignored and then the kids. So you can see the power of what Jesus was doing even there. He reaches to the edges of his society he brings the children, the marginalized, right into the center. The ignored and the dismissed are now in the spotlight. A couple years ago, I'm so bad at that. I always say, everything's a couple years ago in my life. Anyone have that phrase? I just say a couple years ago, and then my wife will be quick to remind me. That was like a decade and a half ago. Everything just feels like a couple years ago. Anyway, <clears throat> before I got married, I was living in the city, living over on Weekend Inn Street, and uh, we had started uh, this nonprofit called Love Providence, which essentially helped make sense of what it was to plant this church. 
And I had an opportunity with a very wealthy sort of investor who was buying uh, property, convinced him to buy a property in one of the most at-risk, non-gentrifying neighborhoods in the city. And uh, I had the opportunity to live there for very, very cheap with a number of other friends for years. And there was this opportunity while we were there um, and this like vision while we were there to serve, to go there and be this outpost of God's love and kingdom in a neighborhood that was struggling like on every single metric from the schools to poverty to prostitution, like two and a half blocks from where the street, from where the house was. I went there to serve and to show the hospitality of God. And many of you have heard these stories before. But something I don't talk a lot about is when we did this, what I found actually was not just a greater drive to serve and be hospitable in the way Jesus calls us to, but I actually found Jesus in a whole new way. I found like the joy of a life centered on welcoming others for sure, but I also found more than that. Found more than that. Something about playing like Dominican dominoes like with a bunch of fellows across the street and hearing their stories and their struggles. Something about praying with prostitutes on Elmwood. Something about getting into the local school system and building out programs and walking with some of the immigrants and refugees there. It's like the classic story. You go there to sort of build something and to serve and to leverage your privilege and resources and then you find yourself being served and welcomed by Jesus. Matthew 25, very famous passage we read. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory... So like when Jesus returns again, sits on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, kingdom uh, for you, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. He says this, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you? He's giving this vision of what it's going to be like in the end. And all the disciples sitting around Jesus are confused, which is a pretty normal state of being for them. You're thirsty. Hungry. And they're like, we never saw you hungry or thirsty. You're going to like judge us based on this thing that didn't actually happen. When did we see you, Jesus, a stranger and not invite you in or needing clothes and not clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. 
Jesus isn't the one doing the visiting. Simple observations about this text. Jesus is the one being visited in these stories. God isn't the host. God is the what? The guest. God is the stranger. This is what this season of Advent, one of the many things that it invites us to see is the God who comes and makes his home among us. Hospitality isn't being like God first and foremost, but welcoming God into our lives. We talked about this two weeks ago. As Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I'm standing at the door knocking. Hospitality is opening the door to let Jesus in. You could say it like this. We don't show hospitality to be like Jesus. We show hospitality to welcome him. I have found something in the scriptures that ring true, like it rings so, so true in my own journey. One of the most common reasons we don't welcome Jesus in disguise is actually the simplest. We don't see him. You just don't see him. Or if we get a glimpse of him, we don't stop. And if we do stop, we don't actually move towards him. And so we miss out on God's hospitality to us, which causes us to miss the invitation to extend that radical hospitality to others. So it's three simple things, and like everything in the Jesus way, simple and yet utterly challenging, that I want to invite us to look at. Three words. Seeing. You say seeing. Stopping. And approaching. First, you with me? Seeing. In 2006, two neuroscientists from Princeton published research excuse me, on how certain social emotions affect the brain. Four social emotions were examined. Pride, like good pride, like pride in your work, pride in your country, pride in whatever. Pity, envy, and disgust. So these college students looked at pictures of four different sorts of people selected to try to get them to have some kind of reaction. Pictures of middle-class Americans, American Olympians were selected to like, bring out the emotion of pride. Elderly and disabled people were used to elicit pity. Rich business people were used to elicit envy. Homeless persons and drug addicts were used to elicit disgust. The images triggered their respective emotions, allowing the researchers to watch these emotions on brain scans. Here's the interesting thing here. The researchers were paying attention, like really specific attention, to part of the brain that's closely associated with social cognition. This part of your brain lights up when you're interacting with a human being rather than, say, dealing with a rock or a tree. Follow me? So you'd expect a social center of the brain to light up when we're feeling positive social emotions like pride, looking at people who remind us of ourselves. But what about the negative emotions like pity or envy? So when the subjects of the study looked at pictures of elderly and disabled people or like really, really like wealthy, rich business people, they did uh, report feeling pity and envy. Those negative emotions, though thankfully, still triggered the uh, medial prefrontal cortex to light up. It still caused them like to see them, though these were negative emotions, as people which is good. It's good. But things get different for the emotion of disgust. When they're triggered by these pictures of homeless persons or drug addicts, when the participants looked at these people, the, me the medial prefrontal cortex didn't light up. 
The brain was not recognizing the homeless people or the drug addicts as human beings. Fascinating, right? The brain saw the homeless people and drug addicts not as people but as objects. This, by the way, on a neuronal level is what dehumanization looks like. Literally. What this brain imaging research shows us is that we can be looking right at people and not even see them. We can look at someone like a homeless person sleeping on a park bench and not even see them as a human being. Seeing or noticing people is fundamentally a practice of attention. Jesus kept saying things like this. Stay alert. Keep watch. Don't fall asleep. These reminders actually grew in frequency and intensity as you read through the story of Jesus. There is this very clear invitation to get our attention fixed on the right things. And then they culminate in the Gospel of Matthew with that passage that we just read of saying, you want to get an image of like what the end is like. It's like there are going to be some of you who didn't greet me, didn't welcome me in, didn't see me. And they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And again, we see the like, implicit link between loving God and loving people. I sometimes think we Protestants have uh, done what Paul says not to do, which is keep on sinning so grace will increase. I think we've gone, well, I've said a prayer, then things like heaven and right living are sort of like all taken care of. And we miss passages explicitly that says, if you do not do what I say, we have a problem. If you'd like to experience truth and beauty and rest and joy, you better begin to adhere to my teachings. It's the stuff that when we start talking about grace and God's unmerited favor and he will meet you right where you're at and that's how good God's love is, we ignore that God's love is volitional. Seeing. The invitation to see is so critical. Imagine finding yourself needing to go to the grocery store after a draining day at work. You're hungry, you're tired, and all you want to do is go home. But you have to go to the store to get something for dinner, and after picking up some food, you're stuck in a long checkout line. Your mood turns dark, maybe? Anyone else start thinking very antisocial thoughts about everyone around you? Our days, right, are full of these dreary, annoying, and seemingly meaningless routines. And from long grocery lines to traffic jams to putting up with annoying people at work. But it's in these kinds of places, in the middle of these annoying and irritating situations, where the practice of attention, of seeing and noticing human beings standing right in front of you is so critical. Because my natural default state my natural setting is what? <laughs> Frustration and annoyance. I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am and that some of these people actually have much harder and more tedious or painful lives than I do overall. But to do this, it's hard and it takes actual effort. But if you can really learn how to pay attention, it will actually be within your power to experience a crowded and hot, slow, consumer hell type situation 
as not only meaningful, but sacred. This is what the contemplative tradition in Christianity teaches us again and again. Slow down. See the sacred everywhere. See the compassion and love that sits below the surface of things. Seeing people, though, is a disciplined practice. You've got to come in ready. It takes will and it takes effort. And that widens our circles of affection. That it replaces things like repulsion and contempt with things like love and compassion. Mother Teresa always says, Calcuttas are everywhere if we only have eyes to see. Calcutta, by the way, was the place in India where she was serving the least of these. In the poor, we meet Jesus in his most distressing disguises. Seeing people is a disciplined practice. Seeing people is a way we show kindness. Seeing people is so close to loving people that I think they're basically interchangeable. I've heard that said about listening to people. To feel listened to and to feel seen not sure there's a big difference between that and feeling loved. It does something to us. Okay, number two. I gotta go way faster than this. Stopping. Stopping. In 1970, psychologists John Dari and Daniel Batson decided to replicate Jesus' most famous parable. Anyone heard of the Good Samaritan? Classic story, right? Good Samaritan. There's uh, somebody who is hurting on the side of the road. And Jesus sends these three characters in his story down the road. And the religious folks don't go to care for him. The people that actually go to care for the man, this, this ostracized, broken, marginalized man already who is bleeding in the pit, uh, is, the very, is the unlikely person who goes down and cares for them. So here's the experiment. They would send out these seminarians, people training to be in ministry, they would pass by, they would put a man out on the street, and the psychologist would took, took note of a simple variable. Who stopped and asked if the man in the doorway was okay? They would send these seminarians, like the priest and the Levite in that parable, to pass by, who would pass by on the other side of the road? Base, that was the basic idea. A couple twists they added to the story. First, before being sent out to pass by the groaning man in the doorway, these students were told that they were going to give a brief talk at a different location, a location that would cause them to pass by this groaning man. He would groan as soon as they walked by. The subject of the brief talk varied. Half of them were to read and then share reflections about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the other half uh, were, were um, going to give a talk on an unrelated subject. So... That was the first twist. The second twist was that uh, there was a time pressure. As the seminarians were sent to the next location, they were put under uh, a particular time pressure. The students in the low hurry group were told they had plenty of time to get to the location of their talk. In fact, they'd likely have to wait once they got there. The students in the high hurry condition were told that they were already late for the talk. People were waiting for them, and you'd better hurry. With these two additional twists, these future leaders of the church were sent out to pass by a man in need of help, and the psychologists were watching. So, who do you think stopped to help? There are three hypotheses. First, maybe almost everyone would stop to help, or maybe help would be prompted by the students that had this, the Good Samaritan on their mind. The second hypothesis was maybe if you're thinking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, you'll be better able to spot similar situations in your own life. 
um, uh, and then you'll be more likely to act. Or maybe um, it's all about having time to help. The third hypothesis was maybe we're more likely to help when we have the time. Maybe the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan passed by because they were simply in a hurry. The results of the experiment were clear. Only one variable predicted who would stop. Can you guess what it is? Can you guess what it is? It's time. It was time. The students most likely to stop were those who had the time. We've been talking a lot over the last year about removing hurry from our lives. We need to be interruptible if we want to follow the way of Jesus. Most of the teachings we read about in the life of Jesus, most of the profound words don't come from planned teachings. They don't come from a planned church service. They don't come from some TED talk that Jesus was ready to give. They were almost all interruptions. Have you noticed this before? Jesus was interrupted over and over and over again. There's this one time where like friends were dropped through the ceiling. And then suddenly, like we, we literally don't know what Jesus was teaching on that day. But we do know all of the good news of forgiveness and healing that he spoke to the lame man who banged in. Jesus was interrupted when he was alone praying and needed to grieve. He wanted to be alone when he found out about John the Baptist. He would try to slip away from a crowd in a boat and then he would come ashore and there would be thousands waiting for him. Blind Bartimaeus found Jesus on the road to Jericho and Jesus worked one of the miracles that increasingly distinguished his ministry and showed people that God's ear turns towards the poor and the needy. We'll come back to that one in a second. Jesus was interrupted when he was sleeping on the boat and he uses that moment to teach about fear and about faith and about perspective. He was interrupted when he was eating. Like we, we've already talked about this a bunch with this hospitality series. So much of his best teaching comes out of these moments of being interrupted at the dinner table. Even Jesus' interruptions were interrupted. Once Jesus got out of the boat, it was interrupted by a crowd, but a rich man named Jairus, who had the clout to get through the crowd and in front of Jesus, asked Jesus to come with him to heal his daughter. Jesus agrees to the detour and begins to go with Jairus, but as the crowd begins to move, Jesus notices that someone touched him who had serious need. Jesus asked who touched him, and we find out that it was a woman who'd been bleeding for years. This is a woman who likely had been ostracized for that long. Jesus sees her faith and heals her. The interruption of the interruption was used to show God's care for everyone regardless of their station or of their position in society. Jesus was moving, my point is simple, was moving at a pace where we could, he could see the interruptions for what they were. His pace made room to see and respond to the interruptions. Those moments, those small, seemingly insignificant moments that make up your life, most of them are interruptions. At the very end of that passage where um, Jesus heals the blind man, Bartimaeus, at the end it says, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. I think our Christian witness and our ability to see God hangs on those two words. Jesus stopped. The Good Samaritan stopped. Jesus stopped. Will we stop? The path of Jesus will make us late. Stopping is a practice of hospitality because it makes us available to God and to each other. 
do we see and have eyes to see? And are we willing to live a life where we can actually stop? Lastly, by the way, with this, I, no, never mind, some other time. (laughs) Man, I just don't know how people live a boring life as followers of Jesus. I just don't get it. I don't get how it's possible to live a life without adventure and to say you're a follower of Jesus. It's not possible to get sucked. I mean, it is possible. But if we're really being devout, it's not possible to get sucked into like middle-class boredom because we're people who are seeing and stopping and approaching all the time. I mean, I get that it's possible. It happens. That's why I'm saying it as a challenge to us to go, oh, maybe I don't really trust that the kingdom of God is actually at hand and God isn't breaking through all around me. That's a cute thing that the pastor says, and maybe the pastor has a little more time to see, stop, and listen, but it's just not true. So I'll go really quick with this last one, approaching. A critical aspect of the practice of then approaching is intentionality. Going against the grain of your emotional and social triggers, the practice of approaching is habitually leaning in where your default is to lean away intentionally reversing the trend to lean away from people, instead lean towards them. St. Teresa says this, one of my all-time favorite quotes. She says, most of us aren't, supposed, aren't surrounded by enemies, but we are surrounded by feelings. <laughs> it's really like I don't get it. <laughs> like most of us aren't surrounded by enemies. Once we find enemies, we actually get out of there. We run. We dodge. We try our best to get, I mean, that's a good natural response, I guess, for the most part, though we're supposed to try to love them. What's she saying? She's saying we, 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 we often don't have enemies in our lives as much as we have irritants. Think about the workplace or even this building right now. Maybe it's me because I'm preaching long. Think about all the feelings going on. I like her. Love them. I'm jealous of them. I have a grudge there. I have resentment there. I have annoyance there. I have irritation there. I have scorn there. I have contempt there. I mean, contempt, if that's not the sin of our age. Contempt. We just write people off. We write whole institutions off. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that one church down there in Alabama that did that thing and aligns with those people. So I guess that has something on earth to do with my church here. I digress. Our social world is a zoo of feelings. I feel annoyance and irritation and contempt. And these feelings can so easily narrow the circle of our affections and the territory of our kindness. How many times have you taken a detour around someone when you've seen that person coming? Come on, how many of y'all detour? The practice of approaching is about going against the desire to detour. Our world so easily causes, I mean, (laughs) people to be ignored and isolated and marginalized. The practice of approaching breaks up the bubbles of isolation and moves us towards each other while others are moving away. You want to be peculiar? You want to figure out how to reach your neighbor? Figure out how to put the love of God on display? Just start moving towards people. 
our social autopilot naturally follows the path of least resistance. We see it here in church all the time. It's just so easy, so easy to turn or avoid or look away or not embrace. We default to our friends. When you're on social autopilot, it doesn't take much to cause you to lean away from people. The slightest twinge of awkwardness can have such a huge social impact. The difference between seeing and stopping and then approaching someone or not. The practice of approaching is to move into that awkwardness and into that strangeness. When you are disciplined about this, what you find is that the awkwardness slowly disappears and is replaced by affection and love. You welcome the stranger God. You don't fall prey to the goats in that passage in Matthew. You end up meeting Jesus and clothing Jesus and loving Jesus and walking with Jesus. The unique claim of Christianity is that God has approached us. That God has come to find us. It's the story of God coming to be with us and it's so hopeful. Because I think the best description of the late modern human condition is just lost. We're lost. We're restless and we're rootless and we're craving relationship. And in a world of such distraction, we're craving God, an encounter with God. And it's so cool that these two things go together. We get to be both the hands and voice and feet of God and we get to meet him in the same breath. I want to read this quote again. I know I make jokes about St. Bono, but I read this when we first began Advent, and I find a way to weave this into a sermon at least every couple of years. But I love this because it gets again at the very heart of the Christmas story of the God who sees, God who stops, God who approaches, shows us what it is, to come and be with us and the God who invites us to do the same again, not just for the sake of our neighbor and the strangers, but for our own hearts. Another way to put all this, by the way, is just like when Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. As a Christian, what I'm saying when I say that and hear Jesus say that is that that's just a better way to live. Guys, if we're all wrong about all this Jesus stuff, we somehow like, all those words we felt like God spoke to us were just like made up. It's all just like a joke. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I will come to the end of my life with zero regret because I literally have not found a better way to live than this. In an interview, for all those Gen Z folks, Bono is the lead singer of a once popular band. Let me try to explain something to you, which I hope will make sense of the whole conversation. I remember coming back from a very long tour on Christmas Eve. I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It had dawned on me before, but it really sank in, the, the whole Christmas story. The idea that God, if there, is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough 
that it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by, by becoming a child born in straw poverty. A child. I just thought, wow, the poetry. Unknowable love, unknowable power describes itself as the most vulnerable. There it was. I was sitting there and tears came down my face and I saw the genius of this. Utter genius picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Because that's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Love needs to find form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. To me, it all makes sense. It's actually logical, pure logic. Essence has to manifest itself. It's inevitable. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. Lord, we thank you that you have not abandoned us. We thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And I thank you, Lord, for Jesus' reminders that not only are you not far off, but that if we have eyes to see, if we have the discipline to stop, if we have the fortitude and courage to approach, there is so much life and joy waiting for us. There is fresh encounter with you and fresh joy in fulfilling the mission you've called us to. So as we close, I just pray, church, might we be a people, might we be a people who know how to see and stop and move towards those that are hurting and broken. And might it well up, not from some religious guilt might it well up from our love this song that we're going to sing in a minute jesus we love you you're the one our heart adores holy spirit would you come